Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. rabbi. Our story picks up after a daughter was born to the king and queen, and she's fabulous and amazing, and she speaks all the languages and plays all the instruments and knows all the wisdoms, and people came from far and wide to see her, and the king had joy from her. But afterwards, the king experienced great longing to have a son. Longing in Rabbi Nachman's Torah is a privileged experience. It is not something that a person experiences all the time. A person might experience taiva, desire. A person might experience ratzon, wanting. But it is not as common that a person would experience kisufin, longing. A person might recognize that they're missing something, as the king did in this story. But that doesn't equal longing. A person might notice that they would need or want something. They might make a connection in their mind. They might realize that having that thing would be better. But that's not the same as longing. Longing is not something that you can fake. It's not something you can generate. Longing, in fact, might be so rare or so precious that when you experience it, you should delve into it and take it seriously and act on it, write poetry about it, express it, pray it, hold it, let it fuel you, let it feed you, let it bless you and guide you, should cherish the experience of longing when we have it. I would challenge you and challenge myself right now to look inside and to wonder is there anything I'm even really longing for right now? Is there anything inside of me which goes beyond a sense of that would be cool to have or that would be nice or yeah, that sure is missing from my life, but something that I'm really longing for? You could probably imagine that you're probably not longing for a new television or some object. You might be longing to go to Israel. You might be longing for friendship or companionship. You might be longing for catharsis or fulfillment but you're probably not longing for a donut. There's a beautiful passage in the Zohar in Breshit on page 19 that's discussing a mystical concept that I certainly don't fully understand or even halfly understand about the throne of God, which is ascending and having a unification with another element of God, which is higher. And we read there, that this throne ascends and it is impressed upon by these four sides of what it encounters. And from there, And there, it is collecting and gathering souls and inugin de kisufin, the pleasures of kisufin. And oneg doesn't even just mean pleasure, oneg, which is bliss, the bliss of longing. And since it has gathered, or once it has gathered these inugin, these blisses, 
and this longing, these longings, then it comes down below, nachata malia. It comes down full. Kilana de malia anpin the cholsatar, like a tree that its branches are laden on every side and it's full of fruit. You see here that longing is a fruit. It is not something that yields a fruit. It is something, it is a fruit. It's a blessing to have. It is nourishing in a certain sense, even just to have longing. But see here that the Zohar refers to inugin dikisufin, the bliss of longing. Not the bliss of having what I long for, but the bliss, the sublime pleasure of genuinely experiencing longing, of really, really deeply longing for something in that way. And that's what the king experiences right now. He's experiencing longing for a son. He doesn't just want a son. The reason given, in order that his kingship or his kingdom will not be turned towards a strange man, sounds very similar, of course, to the original one. But let's take it seriously. Let's not take this as the king being selfish and wanting a kid just for his selfish purposes. Let's take this as someone who's built something that he deeply, deeply believes in and that he loves and that he really wants that thing to continue. And he's, he's sensing the delicateness of that to the point where even having a daughter who will marry someone from outside the kingdom and will rule with that king, even that is not enough for him. He really wants to ensure that what he has created in the world thus, thus far will have an opportunity to be continued in the way that he's designing it. When I first read this story, I experienced that as selfish, and now that I spend more time with it, I appreciate it more and more. I respect that someone would create something that they believe in so much that they really want it to continue after they pass from the world, that the thing that they created isn't just about them. It isn't just about something that satisfies them in their lifetime, but it's something that they believe in so deeply that they want it to continue. And yes, they want it to continue in the way that they see it, in the way that they see that it should go. They want it to go according to their particular aspirations and trajectories and plans. And while that in some ways is limited because it prevents me from allowing someone else to have their input, yeah, there are certain things that I want those things to be and to, to have the character that I impart to them when I made it. I experienced this a good amount when I was in a band and we would play music together and I have a song and I really want the song to come out the way that I want it to come out. I want the other people to play what I asked them to play. There are other songs where I really want people to improvise. And there are some songs where I really want the people to play the things, play the parts that I've articulated henceforth because I really want it to sound that way. And this king, he has something he really cherishes and he wants that thing to continue. So what does he do, this king? Because our shuvala yudim shi palalu shi bin, he once again decrees upon the Jews that they will pray that he will have a son. Why does he use the same exact method that he used last time? Because it worked. Must a person reinvent their methods every single time? It can be. Depends. But here, the king saw that this was fruitful, and he therefore decrees on the Jews again that they will pray for him, and he'll have a son. There's an essential, essential, essential difference, though, between what happened last time when he decreed on the Jews that they would pray that he have a son and the way that he goes about it now. In the original, it says, al Yehudim shi palalu avuro shi And he decreed 
about the Jews that they will pray for him, that he will have children. And here it says, Gazar here he decrees upon the Jews, Shipalalu, that they will pray, Shialoben, that he will have a son. The key word that's missing from the first time to the second time is the word Avuro, for him, on his behalf. Ironically, or perhaps not ironically, the king, as he realizes how precious and important it is to him that what he has created will continue. And at the same time, he wants that not for himself. He's not asking them to pray for him that he have a child. He's asking them to pray that they have a child. This isn't about him anymore. The possible irony, and again, I think it doesn't have to be an irony, actually could be a very direct and natural and organic relationship between the things is that the more precious this thing is to him, the reason why it's so precious perhaps is because he sees it as something which is of so much value and of objective value to the world that it's not about him anymore. And as it's not about him anymore, he feels he can ask them to pray for it, not because it's about him. He knows what he wants. He really wants that son so that the kingdom, so that what he created will remain in the fold, as it, as it were, in the family, it will remain under his auspices or under the auspices of the people that he has chosen to continue his legacy but he wants that not for himself. He wants that because he believes in it so much that he wants it for the world. It's not about him anymore. So the king is growing, it seems here. But the Jews, it doesn't seem so. It says about the Jews, it says, All the Jews went and looked for that tzaddik the first time. And they didn't find him. For he was already deceased. This is something that I believe to be a rule about hidden tzaddikim is that once the hidden tzaddikim are revealed, they die. We saw this in the story of Schwarzer Wolf that Roshlomo told so beautifully of the black wolf, of the this man who was everyone thought was so ugly and was so degenerate and was actually the head of the hidden tzaddikim that when he was revealed to the world, he quickly thereafter passed away. So this tzaddik was nowhere to be found. And they sought further and they found another hidden tzaddik. Incredible. What are the odds of that, of finding another hidden tzaddik? I do like to wonder and to imagine how different this second tzaddik is from the first tzaddik. Just how entirely different and unique this person must be as well. With all the same effect. This is not easy He's not just sitting there in his office of the hidden tzaddikim waiting for someone to lift up the telephone and call him. He's someone who has his own inyanim, his own matters that he tends to. He's got his own ideas and aspirations. He's got his own work that he's doing. Who knows what it is that he is sustaining, what he is accomplishing in the world through his avoda, through his service, and through his work. And here they find him again, and he may not make it easy for them at all. And he might be very coarse, and he might be shocking, and he might be difficult. And he might put them through a whole process as they go. So these Jews, lucky enough for them, they found another tzaddik. And they said to this tzaddik that he, he should give the king a son. Now again, this is very different from the first time. At the uh, first tzaddik, it says, So they found this tzaddik. That he would pray that the king will have children or will have sons. But here it says that he will give the king a son. So it seems that the Jews in this story are decreasing in their awareness of the sensitivity of the situation. They once again think that it is mechanistic that this tzaddik can just give the king a son. Now, that's not entirely unique. There are many, many stories in which people go to the tzaddik and the tzaddik makes it happen that the people or person will have 
uh, a son or a child. We saw that in the amazing story of the Baal Shem Tov and his travels to the land of Israel when the couple from Berlin intercepted him in Istanbul in order that he would bless them and he have a child, and he did so. And it's an amazing story in and of itself. But that attitude is a little bit dangerous that the tzaddik simply makes it happen, that the tzaddik simply works it, brings it about, as opposed to the tzaddik praying. Interestingly enough, though, this tzaddik seems to have the capacity to make it happen. But not yet. And he said he has no idea. He doesn't know at all. Again, what doesn't he know? Maybe he doesn't know that it's a good idea. Maybe he doesn't know that it's a good thing for this tzaddik, this king to have children or to have a son. But the Jews who sought him don't seem to respect his not knowing. They don't seem to respect the pause that he's trying to impose into the situation to consider, let's see if this is a good idea. Let's wonder about this. Rather, they quickly, once again, they told the king. And the king said the same thing as above. Don't you know that the Jews are in my hand? I can do with them as I want, etc. Okay. And again, it works. This wise person, he's changed from a tzaddik to a chacham. Although in parentheses, the parentheses, by the way, were written not by Rabbi Nachman, but by his student, Rabbi Natan, who sometimes felt the need to clarify things like this because suddenly he's being called by a new name, a chacham, a wise person, and not a tzaddik. It's as if he's suddenly involved in different means than the original. The original tzaddik was one who would pray, but now this tzaddik has uh, wisdom. He's going to apply certain principles uh, to the situation. So he's called a chacham, but the parentheses tell us, don't worry, it's the same person, it's the tzaddik. He said, Can you do what I tell you to do? Interesting question in and of itself. As if asking for a commitment before telling him what it's going to be. The king said, yes, I can. The wise person said to him, again, not the tzaddik, but the wise person, I need you to bring all sorts of precious stones. Because every precious stone has a particular power. Because by kings there is a book, not written by kings, but kings have this book in their kingly library. In which is written all of the kinds of precious stones. The king said, I'm willing to bring forth or to spend up to half my kingdom in order to have a son. This, of course, reminds us of Ahasuerus and his response to Esther's request for a favor up to half my kingdom. And the king went and brought all manner of precious stones. And this wise man took them and grinded them up. And he took a cup of wine. And he put the precious stone powder into the cup of wine. And he gave half of the cup to the king to drink. And the other half, although again the word here in Hebrew, a little bit tricky, and the feminine, to the queen. Notice that it doesn't say to drink. 
It just says that he gave the queen half of it. And he told them, that they will have a son. Who will be made entirely of precious stones. And he would have all of the powers or all of the capacities that are inborn within those precious stones. And he went to his place. It's incredible here that the tzaddik, who has now become a chacham, he's become a wise person in the midst of this story, doesn't just give the king a son. He works towards giving the king and the queen a, st- a son made of precious stones and having all these incredible powers. The king didn't ask for that. The king didn't ask for anything special. All he wants is someone who is technically his child, whom we think the king would then therefore be able to raise that child and educate that child and guide that child towards being able to continue the legacy that the king has already begun to build. And this Chacham, though, invests so much energy in helping the king and queen have a child who's made of precious stones and who has all these powers of precious stones. This is going to be a special kid if it comes about. More than the king asked for. And we also notice that for the first time, the queen is involved in this story. Whereas the queen until now, all she has done is given birth. Now she's invited into the creative process as well. It's understood that for the king to get what he wants, that the queen will have to be involved, who will have to be a partner with him in the sense that she also will have to have been imbued with these stones, with these precious stones. As you can see, there's just so, so much to explore here. I'll stop for the moment and we'll continue discussing as we can. In Bezrat Hashem, we will first be able to find and to cultivate that longing for holy things and to appreciate the unique opportunity that's embedded within that longing and that that longing will move us through different stages and bring us into contact with amazing people who can help us reach even beyond what we can imagine for ourselves, even beyond what it is that we think that we're longing for, because maybe that is the very definition of longing is that longing is something deeper than even we understand ourselves. I mean...